0: Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest-growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica, and tell her Ian sent you. Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, author and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our second look at the Wonderland Murders, July 1st, 1981. Now this is the second of three episodes, it's going to be coming out early Christmas week as the final episode going to be coming out that Friday with the intention of finishing this case and starting the new year with a brand new case. Before we get going, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for the Deathcast Official, Deathcast Pod, or Deathcast Podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app and leave a five star review as well as subscribe to the show. And speaking of five-star reviews, we do have a new five-star review this week. This comes from Apple Podcasts by poster BTS Platt. Five stars, great podcast. You leave no stone unturned. Great work. Thank you very much, BTS Platt. I appreciate your kind words. Other ways you can help support the show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the Death make a one-time donation, and lastly, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash Patreon, and for as little as $2.99 a month, you can become a Patreon member where you can get access to exclusive content as well as early drop shows. And we are currently in the middle of the very first Patreon exclusive. That being the Columbine school shooting. Something I had refused to do in the free feed. And if you want to know why that is, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash Patreon and become a member. And find out, we just dropped the third episode yesterday as you're hearing this december 24th but there is another way that you can get access to this content it is available on apple podcasts under the subscription link if you go to the show on apple podcasts you'll see it there for 2.99 a month you can get access to the patreon feed Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, find yourself a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, get yourself something to drink, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. We left off last week, we discussed the robbery at Eddie Nash's house, which was perpetrated by the Wonderland gang in concert with porno star john holmes who had gone to nash's home on three occasions in order to make certain that a side door was unlocked we talked about how the wonderland gang had gone inside and pretty much brutalized and humiliated eddie nash and his bodyguard now there's some individuals out there who state that this case has never been solved Well, technically, Los Angeles County does not have it solved. It was, in fact, solved, and you're going to hear more about that as we get further into it this week. So, after this burglary, on Tuesday, June 30th of 1981, John Holmes decided to go back over to Eddie Nash's house and we know this from subsequent interviews with Holmes, from the notes by the investigators who were put onto this case, as well as from witness statements from those who were actually there. According to many people familiar with the situation, Holmes' mindset at this time, the day after the robbery, was that if he went there It was less likely that Eddie Nash would suspect him. However, he did not know at the time that he went to the property, Nash already suspected him. Now, this next part is Nash's narrative of what happened. I want you to keep in mind that at this point, John Holmes was heavily into freebasing cocaine and... As a consequence, he was really incapable of telling the truth in any fashion unless he believed that it served him. But more than that, he would downplay his role in things continuously as well as try and get himself out of hot water with the police. I also want you to be aware that this information was learned by police After they had found the Wonderland crime scene, at this point in our story, they still have not found it. Holmes stated that he went over to Nash's home and was immediately set upon by Greg Dials, who was Eddie Nash's bodyguard. Dials threw Holmes into a chair and began punching him. There are different versions of what happened, but the most consistent one is that Nash ends up having... Holmes tied to a chair and they rifle his pockets, finding his address book inside of his inside coat pocket. Again, this is according to Holmes. Upon finding this, Nash let it be known that if Holmes was not forthcoming with the information that he wanted, then Nash would have Holmes's family killed yes this is coming from the unreliable lips of John Holmes but there actually was a witness to this or rather I should say an ear witness to this in the form of Scott Thorson who was the entertainer Liberace's boyfriend now Thorson himself is a difficult character to look at as he had begun in underage relationship with Liberace that ended up with Thorson getting a facelift in order to appear more like Liberace. He said that this was done at the behest of Liberace and that as his drug addiction worsened, Liberace ended up throwing him out, which led to a palimony suit between Thorson and Liberace, which, Thorson lost. Thorson has, in the ensuing decades, had numerous lunnons with the law due to his addiction issues. And I put that out there at the front because, much with Holmes, anything that this man says must be taken with a grain of salt. However, well after the fact of these murders... Thorson contacted the police and let them know that he had heard what was going on between Nash, Holmes, and Dials, and he pretty much corroborated Holmes's story, basically that Nash had Holmes beaten severely in order to get the evidence from him. And a story as the LAPD later found, it was basically Holmes' was told in no uncertain terms, either you're going to the Wonderland house and you're murdering the individuals that did this, or you're going with members of Nash's group to the house and you are going to witness or participate in the dealing out of retribution to these individuals. And that is a very... Important and key part to this story because as things unfold, you're going to see the LAPD was never able to definitively state whether John Holmes had actually committed the murders that are going to come out of this confrontation at Nash's house. However, they strongly suspect that Holmes was, in fact, involved if not outright responsible for them the whole address book story has also been called into question as obviously why would Holmes be carrying it around with him into Eddie Nash's house the officers who investigated this case came to the conclusion that this was more likely than not one more lie from John Holmes in an effort to cover his own ass and absolve himself of any form of complacency in the crimes. So later on that night, June 30th, John Holmes is known to have returned to the Wonderland House on Wonderland Avenue in Laurel Canyon. What exactly happened next really is unknown, some sources state that John Holmes let individuals into the house. Others that John Holmes left the electronic gate that was attached to a buzzer inside of the house. Open a jar so that individuals could come inside of the home. Given that this was a, an extremely active site for the sale of narcotics... I am more inclined to believe that Holmes buzzed the individuals who came over to the home that morning into the house. While all of this is going on at Eddie Nash's home, David Lind is preparing himself to return to the Sacramento area because he has a court appearance later that day. So Lind ends up leaving and other people come and go throughout the day. Eventually, Holmes shows up at the Wonderland House. An interesting piece of information many people don't know about this case is that both the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well as the Police Department had been aware of the Wonderland House for quite some period of time, specifically that it was a known distribution center for narcotics. And then on the night of June 30th, they actually sent a group of detectives over there to perform a stakeout and keep the house under surveillance. However, after a number of hours where they noticed no suspicious activities, these officers end up leaving. What ends up happening is that at some point in the early morning hours of July 1st, a group of unknown individuals entered the Wonderland house through the electronic gate, came inside, and starting from the downstairs, began to assault the individuals inside of the residence. And I want to be very clear here, this wasn't a standard assault. It was later determined at the coroner's autopsy of the bodies that lengths of styrated pipe had been used. What's styrated pipe? It's basically pipe that has threading on at least one end, kind of like what you would see for gas pipe. And Going into the home, these individuals began to beat The individuals where they lay sleeping, starting on the downstairs floor before making their way upstairs. Now, this next piece of information comes from the statements of Susan Launius, who is the sole survivor of the Wonderland murders. According to Susan, she was dreaming and she thought that she heard a knock on the door in her dream followed by another knock, and then another. She stated that she felt herself being moved around in this dream as these knocks became louder and louder, and that in her mind, these knocks had a metallic sound to them. Next, she recalls seeing a cloud of red mist blowing across her vision, and the... Sound of the knocking becoming clearer and clearer as pain lances through her entire body. She next recalls seeing a length of pipe being held by a figure who was in the shadows. And around her she can hear noises, someone asking where an individual with the beard is, a television Footsteps on the stairs. She attempted to call out to someone and was unable to. She recalls choking on her own blood and rolling over onto her side. Vomiting blood from her lungs which were filling with it. Susan recalls passing out again. And someone striking her husband who had been lying in the bed next to her. Words floated to her again, hit him again. Susan stated that she opened her eyes and saw the image of a man striking her husband with this length of pipe before passing out again. There were more voices after this, and then nothing until sunlight was coming into the room. Susan recalled drifting in and out of this fog-like area, Off and on, until later she hears a voice say, Oh man, this bitch is gonna die anyway. Grab the shit and get out of here. And Susan blacked out again. Until she eventually wakes up in the hospital. All around her was a scene of carnage, which we're going to get to in a minute. Hell breaks out in the house on Wonderland Drive and then everything is still later when police entered the house they found that barbara richardson who was david lynn's girlfriend had been asleep on the couch and had been hit with such force that she was thrown to the floor at which point they continued to beat her it was noted later that there were no defensive wounds on her body either while this was going on or after killing barbara The attackers moved upstairs where they found the bedroom of Billy, Deverell, and Joy Miller. Now, Joy was asleep on the bed, and Billy was in the midst of a heroin-induced nod watching television. Police did discover that there were defensive wounds on Billy's body. From what the police were able to put together later... Billy leapt from the bed after hearing what was going on out downstairs while Joy had begun to rise from the bed, and she never made it any further. Police later said that Joy was beaten so viciously that she was unrecognizable. As for Ron and Susan, they were attacked in their bed and beaten severely. One very interesting, important aspect of this case is that later on, after the police arrive, they find a palm print on the ornate metal railing of the headboard above the Launius' bed, and this palm print ends up belonging to John Holmes. After much investigation, the police came to the conclusion that Ron loathed John Holmes, and John Holmes was deathly afraid of Ron, and there was also some severe resentment there as well. And because of this, none who knew either party believed that Ron would ever have allowed John Holmes into his bedroom. And the police reenacting the crime came to the conclusion that John Holmes had been... The way his palm print was found on this metal railing was indicative of someone standing there using the headboard as a means to steady themselves as they struck down on something below them. And they believed that it was actually John Holmes who had either full-on killed Ron Lanius, or at least had beaten him with the length of pipe. Whether he had done this of his own volition or was instructed to by Nash's people is unknown. I like to believe that John Holmes, well, he may have been coerced into doing it, specifically chose to strike Ron Lawney as because of how Ron had treated him, the way Holmes felt about the man, and the fact that he was continuously humiliated by members of the Wonderland gang. After murdering the occupants of Wonderland, the house was ransacked, specifically of the items that were taken from Eddie Nash's home, but also of anything else of value that they could find. It's known that immediately following the murders, John Holmes fled the area and actually headed to Glendale, where his wife Sharon lived. And here's where things with the Wonderland crime really start to get murky. Many people who know this case know that it was the neighbors immediately next to the home who eventually called the police, but what many do not know is that prior to this, many individuals went in and out of the Wonderland home, during the early morning and midday hours of July 1st, 1981. All of these individuals were known customers or associates of the Wonderland Gang. Now, the first of these individuals was Melvin Hull, who went by the nickname of Whitey. He and a group of individuals were trying to score drugs, and after trying to reach the Launiuses' On the telephone, and being unable to do so, they decided to drive over to the Wonderland home. They really didn't think anything of the fact that the electronic gate on the side of the house was ajar when they arrived, and instead proceeded into the house. Finding that everyone inside was dead and that there was blood everywhere. Hole and these individuals conferred amongst themselves before deciding that somebody else can call the police. While we're here, we might as well see what we can find. And they went about scavenging the house for anything of value or anything that they could snort, smoke, or inject. So Hole and his cohorts fan out through the house, and this information is coming from a jailhouse interview conducted with Hull after the fact remember when I was discussing what Susan Launius stated she recalled to the police which was pulled from many 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 interviews well Hull goes into the bedroom and it's unclear whether he heard Susan cry out or moan or make some sort of a noise but he and the individuals that he were with basically shouted back and forth to each other to leave her. She's going to die anyways before getting what they could and getting out of the house. Now, the po- this is going to present the police with a problem as there are many sets of handprints inside of the house not belonging to the individuals who live there or to the killer's. Because of what happened on the Wonderland House and the fact that Hull and his cohorts had ransacked it, word quickly spread throughout the circle of people who frequented the Wonderland House that something had gone down there, they were all dead. So many people started going over to the Wonderland House, whether it was to steal things or to just check out the scene and find out whether it was true or not. None of these people contacted the police until late afternoon. Now, the neighbors directly to the east of the Wonderland house had made many complaints over the ensuing months about the occupants of 8761 Wonderland Avenue, and nothing had been done about it. So, this led them to really have no recourse, short of calling the police on them, I would imagine. They decided to move so on that afternoon, the people that were living there had the movers in, pulling out their possessions because they just weren't going to take this anymore. The movers were there, and the time frame of this is somewhere around 4 p.m. when two or three individuals exited Wonderland House, and one of the individuals who had exited told one of the movers that there were dead bodies inside of the home. Hearing this, one of the movers entered the home and immediately fled, using the telephone next door to call 911 and request emergency services. At roughly 4:20, police began to send descend on the Wonderland home. Two uniform officers entered the house. And eventually the call was put out that they needed homicide inspectors. And by the time the inspectors arrived on the scene, the media had gotten wind that something pretty horrific had taken place on the scene. And they too had staked out the areas around the home. The first detective to go in was a man by the name of Tom Lang who also worked the O.J. Simpson case among many, many other major homicides. After arriving at the home... Lang was given a quick rundown of what had taken place before he himself went inside to investigate. Now, Lang and his partner ended up being the lead detectives on this crime, and it is from them that we know the information that we do." Lang has been quoted as being told that, quote, "It looks like someone walked through that house with buckets of blood and sloshed it everywhere. Now, the inside of the house was literally just a wash in blood. In fact, you can find video of the police's walkthrough of the Wonderland crime scene online. And it's the first time that the LAPD used a video camera on a crime scene where they videotaped every square inch of the house, and it looks like something straight out of a horror movie. There is blood dripping from the walls on every single surface. The bodies are still there, lying in pools of blood. It's an extremely grisly scene, made worse by the fact that by the time the police arrived there, it was... Early evening, so it's dark outside. So all of the images, while lit from a backlight, are still dark and eerie. Inside of the home, the officers quickly found that Susan Lonious was alive, and they were get able to get her over to Cedar Sinai Hospital, where after many many operations, miraculously, Susan survived. The rest of those inside of the home were not so lucky. Now, what happens next over the you know, next 12 to 14 hours is fairly tedious. The detectives and other officers are going over the home, although there's not much that they can do until men, people from the coroner's office come and take measurements of the bodies, photograph them, their positions in relation to one another as well as to other objects in the room. And the reason for this is they cannot do this because the coroner's office in Los Angeles County, specifically the head coroner, is the highest police official in the county. And to do so would be basically to break the law as well as to break protocol. They cannot touch the bodies, move them anything until the coroner gets there, does his review, and claims the bodies, at which point they are removed from the crime scene, and this happened late in the afternoon on July 2nd. In between that, the officers go through the house cataloging everything they can, taking photographs, finding any piece of evidence that they can. One piece of evidence that they did end up finding was actually in the Launius closet. This was a set of antique rifles that they would later learn had been sold by Ron Launius through John Holmes to Eddie Nash. They also learned that the robbery that took place at Nash's home Ron was very specific about getting these weapons back, which is one of the things that tipped Eddie Nash off to the fact that John Holmes was more than likely involved in this, as was the Wonderland gang. Whether it was an accident or done intentionally, we'll never know, but these rifles were left at the Wonderland house, and they were eventually able to be tied to both Launius and Nash through various witnesses, not the least of which was John Holmes. So after all of this, the bodies are removed, the crime scene is secured. This is on July 2nd. On the 3rd, the detective started to piece things together very quickly, looking in and finding that Lonious and Billy Deverell both had extensive records. All of the standard things that you envision when you are thinking of a homicide investigation. A couple of days after the murders, the detectives division received a phone call from an individual identifying himself as Fat Howard. Howard said that he had someone with him whose girlfriend had been inside of the house and had been murdered. Initially, the police were confused as to what specific crime it was that the individual calling themselves Fat Howard was talking about although eventually they were able to piece together that he was in fact talking about the Wonderland murders. Sousa and Lang they're the detectives working this case they head off to the Wonderland house where apparently this individual is at. Reaching the home, they find a large Cadillac with an individual inside it, who would later be identified as Howard Cook, the aforementioned Fat Howard. Cook was a fence of stolen goods who often did work with the Wonderland Gang, getting rid of their ill-gotten gains. So all of three of these individuals go inside of the home, and they find... David Lind inside of the Wonderland house, specifically he's in the kitchen, picking up various pills off of the floor. Eventually, the police convince him that, hey, you should come back with us to the police station. Let us know what you know about this. Now, I believe I discussed Lind in the last episode. Supposedly, he was a former outlaw biker or one percenter. The idea that he's speaking with the police is really unheard of in that culture. However, he does agree to go back to the police station with them. And while he's there, he's taken gigantic handfuls of pills in front of the cops, which they do nothing to stop. But they quickly realize that this guy is the key to everything. And the story he lays out is the story that I laid out in the last episode about the robbery at Eddie Nash's home and about John Holmes's involvement in this crime. From Lind it's also learned about how Nash had been humiliated by the robbers and that Lonius had wanted to kill Eddie Nash and that it was Lind himself who had talked out of committing these crimes. He also stated that the robbers had used a stolen San Francisco Police Department badge to gain entry to the home. The day after this, the police found themselves at the home of Chuck Negron, the lead singer of the rock band Three Dog Night. From Negron, they got some background information on the group at the Wonderland house, something that Fat Howard would also be invaluable in providing to the police. They also learned that the Negrons, or at the very least, Judy Negron, went over to the Wonderland house on the morning of the murder, saw what would, had happened inside, and decided to leave. It's around this period of time that Susan Launius is declared that she's going to live, although she has serious injuries miraculously the blows to her head had dislodged portions of her skull which actually acted as something of a band-aid allowing her not to bleed out as the rest of those inside of the house had done and she's eventually after many 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 months going to be able to speak with the police and give them some sort of coherent information regarding the activities of the gang, her husband, as well as the robbery, and what possibly had taken place that night. So the police have this information. They're looking for John Holmes, who is a transient at this point with his underage girlfriend, on Schiller, but they're really focusing in on Eddie Nash. Nash was well-known in... Los Angeles for his clubs, his political connections, and his drug dealing, which it was said stemmed mostly through the clubs that he owned. Now, they knew they would never be able to get Nash to admit to anything. They also knew that it would be very difficult to get a judge to sign off on a search warrant of Nash based on on the statements of convicted felons and drug addicts and dealers. On July 8th, the detectives working the case learned that the Narcotics Bureau of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was planning a raid on Eddie Nash's home on Donna Lola Boulevard, which is in the Studio City section of Los Angeles. The raid actually took place on the morning of July 10th. This is a scene that's going to play out over and over again, and it's fairly comical. Officers busting in the windows, knocking down doors, basically scaring the living shit out of everyone inside of the home. However, this first raid, when they go in through the back, Greg Dillis is in the back room and he assaults one of the officers, something for which he's gonna end up doing prison time over. This raid netted a number of people, including Nash, and an individual said to have been the godfather of the Israeli mafia, Amnon Bachashan. Now the purpose of the officers going to on this raid with the SWAT team was specifically to have a look inside of Nash's home, but also to see the safe that they had been told about, and they found that the layout of the home matched what they had been told, and also that the safe was in the location where they had been instructed it would be. Inside of this safe was an amount of narcotics, some money, as well as small Handguns. Something else that was found inside of Eddie Nash's home, stuffed under his mattress, was stacks of documents, paperwork, and it was quickly surmised that all of this paperwork were legal documents, police reports, and law enforcement intel reports. Meaning Eddie Nash had somebody inside of law enforcement who was leaking all of this information to him so that Nash could be aware of the movements of law enforcement and hopefully stay one step ahead of them. And a lot of really skeptical things are going to end up happening in this case. The police are going to get a jailhouse informant who is involved in another crime that Nash is being investigated for who later they're going to learn is basically being fed information to give to the police as he has nothing of value to offer them they're also going to learn that John Holmes is actually a police informant and because of this they have to go through another individual inside the police department to get access to him it's unknown whether or not this individual was actually under Holmes's sway or not, but it's suspected he may have been. There's another individual who's going to get involved in this case later on in the decade who works for the DEA, who is basically just a dirty cop, and he's going to end up bringing charges against the cops who are investigating this basically in an effort to get them to stop looking at Eddie Nash and they should tell you the type of you know person Nash was he was able to wield this kind of power to have this type of internal investigation done that nearly destroys the careers of the officers who are investigating the wonderland murders and all of this stems from the fact that the men working the wonderland case refused to turn over information to this dea agent back in the time frame we're talking about though july august they find out about Tracy McCourt, who basically backs up Lynn's story about what had happened. On July 12th, 1981, John Holmes ends up getting picked up at a motel in the San Fernando Valley and being held at a secure location. Basically, Holmes was trying to spin it that he'll give the police everything they want knew, provided they put him in protective custody but not just him also his girlfriend dawn and his wife if you have seen the movie wonderland you know about this particular aspect of the case holmes is willing to talk to the police but eventually he clams up and is just blowing smoke in his ass while they put him up in a very expensive hotel and he and the girls are able to live up a fairly lavish lifestyle for a few days. While Holmes spun his story to the officers, he divulged just enough information to make them interested, but not enough to help them build a case of any sort. An example is the fact that John Holmes refused to name any names in, Involved in the murders, not even Nash. Eventually, after Holmes' wife Sharon leaves, the other two are released. So, the detectives keep investigating this, and they learn from a beat cop that in 1973, Greg Dills had had charges pressed against him while working as a bouncer for one of Nash's nightclubs, as it was said that Dills was known to hit unruly patrons with a length of styrated pipe. By mid-July, the police had learned from a neighbor of Nash that an individual believed to have been Diles had come to their home and requested to use the telephone as someone had broken into the home and assaulted everyone inside, handcuffing them and cutting the telephone lines. Which further proved to the police that this story of this robbery at Nash's home was indeed true. It's also known that this individual came back and spoke to the occupants of this home and let them know that if the police came around asking anything, it would be appreciated if they said nothing. On November 18th, 1981, Henry Hoskins, who was the aforementioned DEA agent, first made his presence known as Nash and 21 others were being investigated by the ATF. As I stated, once it became apparent that the officers were not going to cooperate with him, Hoskins became quite hostile towards them, and both of them got the sense that something was not right with Hoskins. Specifically, these charges were for an arson for hire, The detectives pretty quickly found out that there was a lot more to Eddie Nash than just what was on the surface. They discovered that an individual who was on the Los Angeles County Fire Commission was also Eddie Nash's lawyer, and that this could be a direct conflict of interest in Nash's forthcoming trial. When the... Mayor of Los Angeles was asked about the, this apparent conflict of interest between the two men. He responded that there was, in fact, no conflict of interest present. This bit of information is important as Nash is really going to cause problems for everyone involved in this case because he doesn't play by anyone's rules other than his own. This is just the first obvious sign of that. The year winds on the LAPD really ramps up its surveillance of Eddie Nash, not only because of his suspected connections to these murders, but also because of the obvious, his involvement in the city's burgoing cocaine trade. Nash was raided again on November twenty-fifth, nineteen eighty-one. Eventually, they're gonna end up putting out a wanted poster for John Holmes, and I'm gonna read it here in its entirety. Wanted. John Curtis Holmes, male, white, age 37, six foot tall, one hundred and forty-five pounds, brown hair and blue eyes, driving a nineteen seventy Chevy Malibu, two door faded blue, felony warrant number A028750, charging one count each, grand theft and receiving stolen property. LA Superior Court, Santa Monica, California, LASO, fugitive handling subject, last observed on 13 81 at the San Fernando Valley Inn, a motel located at 10911. Ventura Boulevard, Studio City, frequents motels along Ventura Boulevard, possibly armed with unknown type handgun. Holmes is in a burglar with an addiction to cocaine, freebasing, is hurting for money, and knows he's hot, possibly in the company of one Dawn. Suzanne Schiller, female, white, age 21, 5'2". Brown hair and blue eyes. If located, stake and notify RHD detectives, Lang, Souza, or Tomilson, extension, blah, yada, 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 yada. This is eventually going to lead the officers to go speak with Holmes's wife, Sharon. She informed the officers that there was a few people that Holmes was in close with in the porn industry, and after some prodding, they learned that Some point on July 2nd, John Holmes had arrived at her home bruised and bloody, requesting that she draw a bath for him. And once inside this bath, Holmes had asked her if she had heard about the Wonderland house where the people had been murdered. Sharon also stated that she could tell that Holmes was scared and extremely upset Eventually, the police would come to believe that she probably knew more information than she was giving, but that there was a childhood sweetheart-type love between the two of them, even though the marriage had soured, and that Sharon was not going to give any information that would directly implicate John Holmes in these murders. They also came to believe that she had more likely than not mistaken her date's placing the time of the visit more likely than not on July 1st. As far as the case itself, the officers had already decided that they were going to be charging John Holmes with four counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Were they ever able to locate him? Now, eventually, the police get a tip that Holmes is up in the Pendleton, Oregon area, and that Don Schiller also had relatives up in that general area. They quickly deduced that that is more likely than not where the couple is hiding out and officers from the LAPD end up going up there to try and find Holmes and Schiller. While they were unable to find either of them, they did make contact with Don's Family And this contact is really what's going to help them get John Holmes into custody, which we will be talking about in the next episode. I am going to call it at this point. I hope you have enjoyed this second installment of the Wonderland Murders. Until next time, The Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasts. Stay morbid.